This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I want to remind you that today's briefing is being recorded, and a video will be available online at www.rand.org. Or you can listen to today's discussion by subscribing to Rand's Congressional Briefing Series podcast on iTunes. Welcome. I'm Wynne Burkle, uh, and I head up the Rand Corporation Office's uh, Congressional Relations Office here in Washington, D.C. Let me tell you briefly about Rand before we begin. The Rand Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. RAND focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs, law and business, the environment, and more. As a nonpartisan organization, RAND operates independent of political and commercial pressures. We serve the public interest by helping lawmakers reach informed decisions on the nation's most pressing challenges. RAND disseminates its findings and recommendations as widely as possible as part of our mission as a nonprofit to benefit the public good. More than 10,000 RAND reports and commentary are available free of charge online, again, at www.rand.org. Today you're going to hear from a distinguished panel of experts who will discuss a very timely topic, which is the outlook for U.S.-Russian relations in President Putin's third term. Moderating the discussion today will be RAND's own Andrew Weiss. He is the Center for Russia and Eurasia Director at the RAND Corporation. Um, Andrew is also the executive director of the RAND Business Leaders Forum and a professor of the Party RAND Graduate School. Uh, Andrew's divided his career between government service and the financial sector. Just to give you a, a brief rundown, from 1998 to 2001, he was director of the Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff, where he was responsible for day-to-day management of U.S.-Russian relations. He was also a member of the State Department's policy planning staff, for that, a policy assistant in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy uh, and a budget analyst at the Department of the Army. Uh, his private sector uh, experience comes from 2002 to 2008, where he worked at AIG, uh, subsidiary companies, mostly as an investment strategist and a researcher for global commodities and energy markets. Uh, now that I've introduced Andrew, let me turn it over to Andrew to introduce the distinguished panelists and kick off the discussion. Okay. Thank you, and thank you all for coming out today. I'm pleased to see such a large turnout. We have a few extra chairs and open chairs throughout if people who are in the back want to want to have a seat. It's, um, it's my pleasure to have such distinguished colleagues up here with me today. Um, I'll just quickly introduce them. Steve Sostanovich on my left is a fellow, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, was a point person on policy toward the former Soviet Union and the Clinton administration and also served in the Reagan administration, both at the State Department and at the NSC. <coughs> to my right is Leon Aaron, director of the Russian Studies Program at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, I should point out that Leon today is going to be speaking in his personal capacity and not as a representative of the, the Romney for President campaign. And then to Leon's right is uh, Ed Verona, the president and CEO of the U.S. Russian Business Council, who uh, has split his career between government and private sector experience, worked at ExxonMobil and other parts of the energy industry, as well as at the State Department. Um, My hope is to kick things off with a discussion among the four of us for about 20, 25 minutes, and then open up the floor to discussion, and so that we can really have a true back and forth and not create a seminar atmosphere, but rather a a true discussion. Um, I think to set the tone for this, I'd like to say that as someone who's worked on this part of the world for a fair amount of my professional life, 
I think we're at a moment where humility may be in order and where when we look at what's been going on in Russia over the past several months and what I think has generated the interest uh, that's evident in people's attendance today, um, I can't think of really too many experts who predicted what we saw in December. I, I don't think anyone expected to see this new face of the Russian electorate, politically engaged, westernized, internet savvy, and above all, very funny, and trenchantly funny at that, about their political uh, conditions. Um, same time, I don't think anyone predicted that a pretty undistinguished mid-level intelligence operative uh, who was ushered into power at the end of the 90s during the period when Russia was at its most uh, disorganized and unruly would emerge as this you know, grand statesman of Europe, who by now is one of the longest serving heads of state of any major European power, um, is rumored to be among the wealthiest men in the world, um, and dominates Russia's political uh, situation in a way that, that nobody, I think, predicted. Likewise, no one expected that Russia would experience a dramatic economic boom throughout the past decade in which real incomes were increasing 10% per year for most of the past decade, let alone that Russia would amass the third largest hard currency reserves of any country on the planet just behind uh, Japan and China. Um, and of course, if you go to Moscow today, and Moscow is not representative of the rest of Russia, you will see a fabulously wealthy country where there are Bentleys on practically every corner and a lifestyle that looks very similar to what you see in major Western European uh, capitals, at least in the, the center parts of Moscow. Um, and then finally, on the foreign policy front, I don't think any of us, and I mean those of us who worked on the Obama campaign, would have predicted the success of the reset policy that the administration has pursued in terms of both the kind of cooperation we've been able to elicit from the Russians in the context of the uh, Iran nuclear program, where Russia has voted for sanctions in the UN Security Council a couple times, or the fact that Russia has now become the key, and I would emphasize the key, to keeping our troops in Afghanistan supplied uh, due to the supply corridor that's been created over the past several years and due to the fact that our relationship with, with Pakistan is in such in tough, tough shape. So anyways, with that, let me turn this over uh, to the panelists with a question, which is, what's your take on Putin's return? And maybe we can start with Steve. Uh, there was a lot of talk back during the December-January pre-election period that Putin was on the ropes and that he was going to have to govern in a new way if, uh, if he was able to govern at all. Um, but then there was this resounding 64% uh, Margin, and I'm sorry, won the presidential election in the first round by I think 63, 64 percent, um, and seems to have vanquished a lot of his political opponents. And the protest mood is dying down. What, what's going on? Well, <clears throat> Putin picked himself up and dusted himself off and uh, started all over again. He waged a real campaign, which people didn't really expect. They thought it would uh, uh, the the uh, pre-election period would be marked either by uh, sort of forced liberalization or considerable repression. And instead, Putin ran a very, very aggressive campaign to fire up his base. But his base has turned out to be somewhat different from uh, what you would expect from the description you gave, Andrew, of Russia's economic boom. The people that have benefited most from the economic boom are least supportive of Putin, most critical. And you see that in, uh, in the crowds that formed uh, in Moscow. The base turns out to be uh, a rural vote, a, an er, a, a working class vote, people who've been passed by by the boom, uh, but who are susceptible to kind of nationalist uh, appeals. And Putin did extremely well uh, with that. He, uh, uh, people laughed 
when Putin compared the white ribbons to condoms and said that just shows he's so out of it. They laughed when he said Hillary Clinton was responsible for the demonstrators. But in reality, a lot of that hostility to the demonstrators played pretty well uh, with, the, uh, with the electorate. And that's probably a lesson that a lot of Putin's people are absorbing, uh, that the way you create a viable majority in Russia is hostility to the West, hostility to the uh, middle class uh, elite, and um, uh, that's, we're probably going to see more of that. One other thing I'd say, though, is that what was right about predictions that people made in December and January is that there was a kind of unhappiness with Putin that was not going to go away, that would change Russian politics permanently, and I think we're still seeing that. In the aftermath of the election, there's still a lot of activism. Um, people who were um, hostile to Putin are showing up, uh, contesting local and regional elections all over the country. And uh, the indications are they're going to do pretty well. So, Leon, you've written a lot about this new emerging civil society, which in some ways you know, are the, the paragons of what Steve's talking about, as people who've set up their own political identity apart from national politics. Is that going to change Russia? Is that a fundamental shift in what we've seen yes, over the Putin I, period? Yes, I think, I think, <coughs> I think um, um, expanding on, what, on, on, on the point with which um, Steve um, ended, um, what you have is, uh, in essence, a, a very familiar paradigm, uh, something that we've seen in uh, the 70s in, in uh, Spain, Portugal, and Greece, something that we uh, saw in, um, in the 80s in Taiwan and South Korea. In other words, a middle class that's done extremely well, <coughs> expanded, became self-confident, personally enjoying uh, uh, unprecedented uh, 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 freedom and prosperity, and suddenly wants a say in how the country is governed. This is, you know, leaping alive from from uh, 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 Lipset's or Huntington's books. Uh, this is how, uh, this is a paradigm for uh, uh, modernization and, and, uh, and democratization that comes with it. I believe, based on the content analysis of what they actually uh, said, uh, that that's precisely what we're seeing. Now, there's, a, there's, a good, news, there's good news and bad news for the regime in this. The, the good news is that at the moment, it's more like a civil rights movement. Uh, if you look at their slogans, um, you know, don't step on us, don't lie to us, don't cheat. Um, we want a say in how the country is governed. We want equality before the law, which you know, to the Russians, this is not a, an abstract term. Go try to drive a car on the streets of Moscow and, 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 and see what the traffic police does to you uh, if, if they like to <coughs> make of your car suspect that they could shake you down. Um, the court system, another glaring absence of the equality before the law, where the law is completely banned. Uh, um, and, uh, and we don't want to be disenfranchised. And by the way, on this, let me just make this note. Yes, Putin ran a vigorous campaign, um, and uh, he did get 64% as counted by, by such a, an honest, wholly Kremlin-owned institution as the Central Electoral Com Commission. Uh, you want to trust it, fine. Um, uh, before the election, a, th a third of the Russians say that this is going to be an incorrectly counted vote. But I think more importantly than that, even leaving that aside, 
Putin had monopoly on television and not a single uh, 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 pro-democracy, forget about pro-democracy, not a single effective opposition leader was allowed to run against him. Well, that's, yes, you, it's, it's possible to get 64% under these circumstances. So I would not exaggerate the amount of, um, or, or the scale of Putin's victory. And that's important because that's <coughs> where the legitimacy is. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll get to that question before, uh, I mean, uh, afterwards. His legitimacy is shaken, which is why I, 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 I totally agree with, with Steve. These protests were the spearhead. They were the sign that the legitimacy is badly damaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, how it will develop, we'll see. But, mm-hmm. but I think the concessions that were made, we will return to the uh, election of governors that Putin, of course, uh, 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 scra- uh, scrapped in, uh, in uh, 2004. Uh, we will allow a- an easier, much easier um, uh, procedure for registering parties. Uh, and uh, some very interesting things are happening in Yaroslavl, in Astrakhan, in Chernogolovka. Uh, the opposition is now talking about taking over the governorships or, or mayoral offices, but they're also governors because Moscow and St. Petersburg in, uh, are considered uh, gov- uh, like provinces in Russia as well as the cities. If the election, and I land on this, um, if the elections of uh, governors and, and mayors uh, proceed honestly as they did in Yaroslavl and as they did not in Astrakhan, but there's a hunger strike and we'll see what happens there. Uh, Yavlinsky plans to run in St. Petersburg and Prokhorov, who outpolled Putin in Moscow, uh, wants to run for the mayor of Moscow. This, <laughs> to some of us who remember Steve, uh, this is the spring of 1989, when 45 Opcom first secretaries were voted out, and after that it became obvious that the Soviet political system is irreparably damaged. And if I could add one thing. Yep. And national political personalities and leaders were created at, uh, you know, at voting places. I mean... Yeltsin became the kind of leader that he was because he won elections, and that's what's going to. Uh, uh, th- that's the problem that that Putin faces and, now. And, and with a, with apologies <laughs> to add one more thing, um, uh, Steve, that, that reminded me of a very important point: uh, the stereotype against against uh, which um, um, Andy rails so appropriately is that well, who is where's the alternative to Putin? And there was a wonderful interview that Boris Akunin, uh, strongly recommend his books to you, um, uh, but he also is, uh, is the leader, now one of the most trusted leaders by opinion polls of the opposition, gave an interview to Deutsche Welle. And um, in Russian, you could get it on the YouTube like anything else in Russia today. And uh, they, they asked him exactly the same question. Yeah, but, but who is the alternative, who is the alternative to, uh, to Putin? And he said... I don't consider this question especially appropriate. It's not who, it's what. And that what is an honest, fair, and free election. Then we will see mm-hmm. who. But first we have, before who, we have to have a what. One of the, and I, I don't know if you want to chime in on this stuff. Sure. Well, oh, okay. <coughs> Maybe I will. And also okay. to make a disclaimer. Since, okay. you, since you did it on behalf of Leon, I'll say okay. I am speaking in my own capacity here, in part, 
uh, and not necessarily representing views of, of the member companies of the US RBC. So with that, um, I think as a business association, we're a little uncomfortable at times talking about what is pure politics. Um, but maybe I can address some of the same questions and some of those that you uh, posed to us before, uh, before we came here um, and say, what, what, what do we look forward to? Um, what challenges is Putin going to face? Well, Putin 2.0 is going to differ markedly from Putin 1.0 in the economic realm. Um, and just recall, in 1999, when he became prime minister, um, uh, which you could say began his term in, in effective power, uh, the price of a barrel of oil, Brent barrel, was $20. When he left office in May of 2008, shortly afterward, June, it Brent hit its peak of $147 per barrel. Now that's an incredible stroke of luck, a seven-fold increase in the price of the, of the main commodity export, the main export of Russia. Um, this was luck. Uh, no, no way around it. And it enabled Russia to build up those foreign exchange reserves that you mentioned, also a stabilization fund of about $200 billion. Um, and and, and it was, uh, it, it's a credit to Putin uh, that he supported his uh, finance minister at the time, uh, who was under great pressure to spend that money, um, uh, and said, we'll keep this for, the, for, for, for some unforeseen occurrence, and that was the financial crisis. And Russia might have suffered a severe systemic banking failure if it hadn't had those funds at hand to, uh, to, to salvage the situation. Um, but I can't think of any scenario um, uh, as dire as we might want to imagine uh, where oil prices are going to even double. Um, and and it, it's a general awareness in Russia that every time there's a spike for geopolitical reasons, uh, a, a supply-driven spike in oil prices, it's followed not long thereafter by a drop in prices. They saw that in 2008, 2009 when the price of oil dropped back down to about $40 a barrel and it caused them enormous problems. Uh, so they don't, uh, they, they don't relish the idea of there being some geopolitical crisis that could cause a sudden rise in the price of oil. So Putin is going to be dealing <coughs> with that. And, and maybe even parenthetically here, gas, the global gas market has changed uh, uh, entirely with the shale gas revolution in the United States. Uh, and Russia's main gas market is Western Europe. We have seen a softening there of the market and Russia's uh, export uh, model, its uh, five-year oil-based take-or-pay gas contract uh, isn't, uh, <coughs> isn't going to work anymore. So they've seen, a price of, uh, they've seen the price decline about 35 to 40 percent uh, in their primary gas export market and without the alternative yet of selling gas to China. Uh, so that's, that's what's going to make it very tough. Um, maybe addressing what was said here about uh, about the, uh, the elections. I mean, we focus a great deal on, on the elections, on the street protests, uh, but look where the money's going. Uh, and this is something that ought to be focusing minds in Moscow. Um, last year, net capital flight from Russia was $80 billion. That's net of foreign direct investment. Uh, and last year was a record for foreign direct investment, incidentally. So it's net of that number, of that, of that investment. This year, in the first quarter alone, uh, capital flight is $35 billion, and the pace is increasing. This was supposed to have tapered off after 
uh, after the, the presidential election, or it was even said after it was announced who would be the, the candidate of the United Russia Party. So back in September, there were predictions that we'd see the, a, a gradual uh, uh, reduction in that uh, outflow of capital. It hasn't happened. Um, every indication is it's going to continue going upward. And it's a country, Russia's a country that has a desperate need uh, for, uh, for uh, investment capital. And that money, you know, whose money is it? Uh, some of it's probably oligarch money. Um, people who fail have good reason perhaps to feel nervous about their f political fortunes as, as um, uh, the political configuration in Moscow changes. Uh, but a fair bit of it is also from the middle class. Uh, Well-to-do, professional, upper middle class, but they're, uh, they're buying properties abroad. Uh, they're sending their children or their spouses abroad. Um, they're acquiring second citizenships. Uh, they want to have a, a spare airfield, a zapasnoy aerodrome, as they call it, uh, just in case something goes awry. Uh, and that's, that's something that um, Russia has to address uh, if it's going to uh, develop um, uh, investment, an investment climate that's conducive uh, not only to foreign investors but to Russians themselves. So, so let's talk about what Putin as president, beginning on May 7th, is going to do. Um, Russia's in this weird transition right now where Putin is essentially the head of state, but will not officially assume the duties of president uh, for another couple of weeks. Um, there's a lot of talk in Moscow right now that we're going to see a new government, which has a lot of new, younger faces, a lot more Western orientation in the economic policies. Is that going to change Putin's reputation? Or, you know, if you look at his speech to the nation today, there's hardly a word about foreign policy. He's really talking about pensions and about social guarantees. Um, you know, is that is that something that Putin has figured out that we haven't really figured out? That, that the way to govern is to to focus on these bread and butter issues for for the average Russian. Well, he is. Is, is this directed at me? Okay. Um, he doesn't really have a choice for the reasons that uh, Ed mentions. In the first Putin, uh, and especially the second Putin term, uh, his economic circumstances were so flush, so easy, that he could wave aside criticisms of policy. And when, pe when people said, you know, but there are going to be bad times ahead, we've got to worry about that, he could just sort of ignore it. Um, but now he really can't. Uh, they're forecasting, th these are optimistic forecasts, economic growth over the next, for the rest of this decade, that's half uh, what it's been in the, uh, in the past decade. Uh, so there's a, and, and Ed makes a good point, we focus too much on the protests. I agree with that in this sense. Um, it can sometimes make us forget that the elite the, the governing elite is very divided now about what to do. And there is intense controversy about uh, an economic program that will uh, attract investment, uh, as, uh, as Ed says, that will uh, revive growth, that will uh, reduce corruption, that will uh, put in place the preconditions for, make it possible even to attain the half uh, the fifty percent growth rate that they uh, of what they had in the uh, in the past decade, so he 's got to cope with divisions in, in this elite the The first 
controversies that he's dealing with are not primarily about policy. I would say they're about people. Who's going to get what job? But that implies decisions about, uh, about policies. And I'd add one thing that is related, that kind of connects economic policy and politics. What Russian uh, observers, friends, contacts, pundits say to me is people don't fear Putin in the way that they used to. And that means that Putin can make a decision about policy, but he can't necessarily push it through in the same way uh, that he could expect to uh, in, the, in the previous decade. Uh, he is going to find that dissent is stronger, that challenges to him by the people who don't get what they want are more potent uh, and continuing because people don't fear that it's the worst thing in the world to have Putin uh, disapproving of what you do. So there's going to be a more open policy process. Uh, and I, I haven't answered your question entirely no, no, about substance, but I think yeah. there are, this is going to be a more turbulent time in terms of the pe people scrambling for jobs, people vying for control of policy, and opposing uh, decisions when they aren't happy with them. So let me turn to the foreign policy agenda, if I may. And I'm mindful of our time, and I want to leave plenty of time for discussion with the folks who've come out uh, to be with us today. Maybe if I can ask Leon, you know, during the campaign, uh, Putin said a lot of things that were stridently anti-Western and that, that obviously got a lot of attention um, here. We've seen this unusual phenomenon of our new ambassador in Moscow being serially harassed by Russian TV crews and basically trying to portray him as something he's not, you know, making the uh, spurious allegation that he's involved in, you know, organizing protests mm -hmm. and, you know, spurring opposition. But one of the striking things, and I uh, was really struck by this today when Putin made his State of the Union uh, presentation in the Duma was he talked about how NATO, quote, plays the role of a stabilizer in world affairs. And he went on and he said, uh, we're interested in keeping the situation there under control. We won't want our soldiers fighting on the Tajik-Afghan border. The Western community and NATO are there. God bless them. Let them work. We've decided to support the air and ground transit of some NATO countries, the USA, Germany, and France. We need to help them. That is my position. You know, are we seeing the more pragmatic side of Putin coming through after the election period? And how do you explain these other counterindications? Um, um, here's, here's the thing, Alex. I think, uh, you know, as, as ultimately as we say, uh, all politics is local. So I think is the major directions of foreign policies, truly fateful decisions, are brought or are rooted in domestic politics especially in the case of an autocrat whose legitimacy was badly shaken. Uh, we'll see. He, he may heal it, but I think it's definite. There's no dispute that it, it, it was uh, badly shaken, that the party with which he is associated is now, I mean, the butt of jokes. It's, it's United Russia is, is, is I mean, no, no, nobody would want to be found in the company of, of United Russia, it's it's uh, it's impolite. That's why uh, they're going to make President Medvedev the head. Of, the of course, of course, uh, it's impolite in the in the polite society of Moscow today to be in any shape or form associated with United Russia. Um, so, so it, it is my sense, and 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 Mike McFall, whom you know we all know forever and admire, and who is a personal friend. Um, I mean, it's first 
at, at first blush, it's totally bizarre. I mean, here's the man, and Ed could testify to this, and we we all through meetings with him. Here's the man who pushed through or helped immensely Russia's entry into the WTO. So the man who was uh, instrumental to the uh, new start. Why pick on him? It, this is, I mean, in addition to being vile, it's just odd. Well, when you think about it, it's not particularly odd. I think he's being picked on precisely because he's associated with the reset, which at this point um, not only is unhelpful to Putin, I think, uh, domestically, but in fact uh, is, uh, is, is, from his point of view, is harmful. Because if you are elected on the platform, as, as you mentioned and Steve, if you're elected on the platform, which of course, you know, the tried and true uh, trick of all authoritarians, uh, when everything else fail, fails, claim foreign danger, external danger, you know, people trying to dismember your country with the fifth columnist inside helping them, you know, uh, 20th century, right? Um, so so uh, you claim that, and A, it's technically to kind of, Difficult to come uh, to climb down from this to begin with. Uh, when you you know brought your constituents to near frenzy, uh, but then, but then I don't think he particularly wants to, at least until he really feels secure and stabilized. If you look at how the Soviet regimes operated, it was exactly the same way. When you're insecure, uh, there's there's a danger from the West. America is out to get us. When you feel stabilized, more or less secure, you have a detente. Uh, you, because, because, by the way, legitimacy to a Soviet or Russian leader accrues from both uh, uh, scenarios. It's just a question of how to, how to uh, choose between the two. Uh, in that sense, I continue to believe that Putin is operating within the America is the enemy, and I'm the savior, and I'm the protector. Now. I always made an exception for Afghanistan. And in fact, uh, it, was, it was personally very gratifying for me because forever I, I, I wrote that Russia wants a long conflict in Afghanistan with neither side claiming a decisive victory. One, because as this Putin precisely put it, uh, a sudden overwhelming victory by Taliban in, in Afghanistan essentially uh, presages the fall of Central Asia. And, and, I, and, and, and the Russian troops will be fighting not on the Afghan-Tajik border, but on the Ta Russian-Tajik border or, or Russian-Uzbek border. Uh, so that's clear. They also don't want a clear-cut smashing victory for the West for the same reason. I mean, they won't have to fight anybody, but, but you know, a sudden reorientation of Central Asia in the, in the light of this victory is quite possible. Uh, the authoritarian pro-Russian regimes may be a bit insecure. So I would not extrapolate much from that particular case because it is so clear in Russia's interest to at the very least prevent a, a smashing victory for Taliban. So, do, do so one sentence dissent though. Every Russian <coughs> leader for the past 25 years who is starting his term in office has wanted better relations with the United States. It's a kind of it's not exactly a law of social science, but it's a regular pattern. And I think you have to ask why Putin wouldn't. Uh, there are some domestic reasons that Leon suggests, but there are tr some of the traditional imperatives for trying to improve relations as well. So, Sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's very helpful. So Leon brought up WTO, and 
Right now, Russia's poised to enter the WTO sometime this summer, probably in the June time frame. I'm curious, Ed, there's a lot of concern, I believe, on Capitol Hill about doing things that look like a gift to a Russian government, especially a government that has a human rights record like Putin does. Can you explain to us what the trade-offs are and sort of how people should think about navigating the thicket of trade-offs here? Sure. Um, well, you're right. Uh, Russia has until, uh, to be precise, July 23rd to ratify the agreements. And 30 days afterward, after it's deposited the instruments with the uh, WTO secretariat, it is a member. So we're looking at, you know, August, late August, uh, I think without any doubt. There is a movement <laughs> within Russia to try to uh, uh, prevent Russia from ratifying the documents. Uh, there's even talk of a referendum. Nothing, nothing's going to come of it, um, even though I think at times Putin's attitude toward the WTO was a little bit ambivalent. Um, uh, but So they're going to be in. Um, and we have uh, a, a law in effect, the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, which will prevent us, prevented us at the time that Russia was invited to join from um, announcing that we would extend unconditional most favored nation uh, status to Russia. That's PNTR in our trade lexicon. Um, and we had to announce that to the other members of the WTO. We are the only member company, a country, of the WTO which has not extended MFN status to Russia. And Russia promptly announced that it would not extend any of the MFN conditions or the concessions that it uh, is extending to uh, the uh, other members of the WTO unless the U.S. is, uh, there's a reciprocal uh, action from the U.S. So um, we will be at a disadvantage in what is one of the world's uh, important emerging markets and one that has a very strong uh, predilection for American goods and services uh, to all of our competitor, uh, all the other com competitors from other nations. And, um, and this doesn't do anything, it doesn't give us any leverage in our relationship with Russia. Um, and the reasons why it hasn't been lifted when uh, every administration since, uh, since the Clinton administration has said that it's time to, to to, re to repeal it or to lift it with respect to Russia uh, has a lot to do with, um, well, the fact that there wasn't a pressing need. There was no imperative. And, and it has a certain totemic value to many people. It was a piece of legislation and maybe the gold standard of human rights legislation and foreign policy. And people are reluctant to give it away, uh, even though it serves no practical purpose. It's an, it's an irrelevance to, uh, to, to modern-day Russia. Um, incidentally, the people who were uh, instrumental in getting it adopted, the, the National Council of Soviet Jewry, uh, is now w a member of the Coalition for U.S.-Russia Trade and a strong supporter of lifting Jackson Vanek. So um, uh, the only reason to keep it is perhaps that it provides leverage within the Beltway, that if, if someone wants something, somebody else says, I want something and I'm willing to trade, trade for it. That, that could be one way of seeing it. Um, so, um, but there's no leverage at all against the Russians. We're only hurting American business, and we will be losing out on tariff concessions, on, uh, new, uh, on, on, on reinforced standards for, for, uh, sanitary, uh, for sanitary standards for, for pro agricultural products, for non-tariff barriers, for intellectual property rights the plethora of, of um, issues that come up in our trade relationship, and some of them which have, have been so vexing uh, 
uh, in the last uh, two decades of our relationship with Russia. We won't get them. So I, I guess this may be a question someone will want to pose later, but what would we put in its place? Or, or is, there, is there some sort of a trade-off? That's the question right now. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.